0: This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel anytime and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Forgotten Ally, China's World War II, 1937-1945, by Rana Mitter. We're going to be dealing with the relationship between the two neighboring powers of Asia in a series of future episodes, and when we do, I'll be drawing very heavily from Mitter's work on Chinese politics and the way in which China's leaders saw Japan. It's an intelligent and clearly written work, and I recommend it very highly. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 78, The Sage of Mita. This week we're going to talk about a man whose career essentially made his name synonymous with the spirit of westernization that defined the Meiji period. Despite never actually holding a rank in the Meiji government, and in fact working for the Tokugawa for about eight years, Fukuzawa Yukichi became one of the best-known proponents of westernization in Japanese history. His thinking helped define the Meiji Age. Not that you would know it to look at the beginning of his life. Fukuzawa Yukichi was born in the commercial hub of Osaka on January tenth, 1835. However, his family were not natives. They were from a small domain in Kyushu called Nakatsu, centered on the modern city of Oita. His family was of middling rank. His father was a scholar in his off time, but officially served his lord working as an official in the treasury of Nakatsu Domain, a job which required him to routinely travel to Osaka to manage the domain's trade there. Now, when today we think manager of domain finances, we'd probably think that's a pretty prestigious job. In Tokugawa, Japan, however, things were very much the opposite. Being overly concerned with petty things like money was the mark of a merchant rather than an honorable samurai, and thus treasury-related postings were not considered very prestigious. Nakatsu, like all other domains, was extremely stratified by internal rankings among the samurai class. Later in life, Fukuzawa described his own family's rank as only a few steps above the absolute bottom for the samurai scale. His father, Fukuzawa Hyaksuke, reportedly wanted him to become a Buddhist monk specifically because the Buddhist hierarchy was not rank-bound. Even a lower-ranking individual could become, for example, the chief abbot of a temple. A year and a half after his birth, Fukuzawa Yukichi's father took ill and died. His mother was thus forced to take Yukichi and his brother back to Nakatsu. Yukichi himself did not immediately inherit his father's interest in scholarly affairs. Until he was 14, he generally slacked off in his education, but at that age he was finally convinced to begin applying himself to his studies. He devoured the intellectual canon of Japanese society, which at that point generally consisted of the great works of Chinese Confucianism, for example, the Lunyu, or Analects of Confucius, and the Mengzi, or Mencius. He also read the major works of Taoism, as well as Japanese commentaries on all of these books. Still, Fukuzawa was never really satisfied by these works and their common interpretations. He never understood, for example, why it was that gentlemen of breeding were supposed to despise wealth. In his autobiography, he tells a story of being asked by his brother what he wanted to be in the future. He responded by saying that he wanted to be the richest man in Japan and his brother promptly chewed him out for such vulgar aspirations. Fukuzawa was a young iconoclast in more ways than one. For example, in his teen years, he decided to intentionally provoke the wrath of the god Inari by desecrating his shrine. Specifically, he stole a holy rock inside the shrine and replaced it with one from the road, in order to prove that the talk of divine punishment by the gods used to scare young boys was a load of nonsense. He also earned a reputation for calling out fortune-tellers and mystics for simply making all of their predictions up. Worst of all though, he even questioned some of the injunctions involving respect for his daimyo. When he was accused of disrespecting his lord by accidentally treading on a piece of paper bearing the lord's name, he responded indignantly that it was just a piece of paper and it wasn't like he'd actually stepped on the man or anything. In 1854, at the age of 19, his brother, either because he figured it would be a better fit for the young Yukichi, or just to get him out of the domain before he could say or do anything really stupid, arranged for him to go to Nagasaki to study the field known as Rangaku. Rangaku literally translates as study of the Dutch, the Netherlands being the only Western country allowed to trade with Japan. All imported Western knowledge, from new medical textbooks to military strategy, came through the Dutch in their small, isolated enclave of Deshima in Nagasaki. Thus, Nagasaki was one of the premier centers for studies of things Western. Nakatsu Domain needed someone familiar with the subject, Commodore Perry had arrived in Japan the year before, and some daimyo were expecting to have to fight the West militarily. Doing so would require updating the domain's combat technology, most importantly by importing some new cannon to replace the 200-year-old models currently in use. Fukuzawa took to Rangaku with a passion. He had been charged with learning about gunnery and learning the Dutch language, and quickly outstripped his teacher in both to such a degree that said teacher concocted an elaborate scheme to get Fukuzawa out of his school the instructor worried that his students would stop respecting him and jump ship over to Fukuzawa, who had a much better grasp of Rangaku than he did. Fukuzawa caught wind of the scheme and, deciding that he had worn out his welcome, left to go to Edo instead. He figured he could find a better instructor there. His brother convinced him to change plans and go to Osaka, and it was there that Fukuzawa met Ogata Koan, one of the premier Rangaku scholars in Japan. Ogata took young Fukuzawa under his wing and even helped the boy support himself by giving him work, first as a school prefect, then as a translator. When Fukuzawa dictated his own memoirs in 1897, his tenderness for this instructor who had supported him through these hard years was evident even forty years after the fact. In 1858, he was forced to leave Osaka for Edo. His domain appointed him their official Dutch instructor and sent him to Edo to teach the daimyo and his family. Fukuzawa was very excited. That year the nearby city of Yokohama had been officially opened for Western commerce, and he was finally going to get the chance to practice his foreign language skills on some actual foreigners. So imagine his surprise then when he finally met these foreigners and discovered that none of them spoke Dutch. It turned out that the Netherlands were not as influential as they had been, and in the most powerful nation on earth, the United Kingdom, they spoke English. For some people, this would have been tremendously discouraging. For Fukuzawa, it simply meant he had to roll up his sleeves and learn English himself. And that's exactly what he did. Two years later, he caught wind of a chance to make use of his newfound talents, the Bakufu had decided to send a delegation to the United States to ratify the new treaty of friendship and commerce between the two. The bakufu would also take this opportunity to put one of its more ambitious projects to the test. You see, the Tokugawa had begun training a modern navy. It had actually ordered its first set of modern warships almost immediately after the arrival of the Americans in 1853. One of these ships, the Konrin Maru, would be sent to escort the delegation, which was being carried aboard the American warship USS Powhatan. It, the Konrin Maru, would be crewed entirely by Japanese. There would be Americans on board, but they would have no official responsibilities on the ship. In other words, for the first time in over 200 years, the Japanese were going to sail across the Pacific by themselves. By the way, the last time, in case you were wondering, was when the Tokugawa ordered an expedition to Europe aboard the Date Maru, a ship designed by William Adams, Fukuzawa was very excited by this prospect and volunteered, in fact was the only person to volunteer, to go on the mission. We could fill an entire episode with discussion just of this mission, but suffice it to say that it went off without a hitch, something that Fukuzawa recorded with tremendous pride. The Conrad Mara was received in San Francisco by extremely enthusiastic crowds, and Fukuzawa himself remained in San Francisco for about a month. While he was there, one of the most famous incidents of his life took place. Fukuzawa went to have a photographic portrait done by a local photographer, and while he was sitting, he noticed the photographer's daughter was there as well. He asked if she'd be willing to have her portrait taken with him, and she agreed. Then, on the way back to Japan, he produced the photo as proof of what a dapper and charming fellow he was. He even waited until they were clear of Hawaii to do so, so that no one else in the embassy would have a chance to copy him. The photo's still around, I'll post a copy on the website. The Japan Fukuzawa returned to, however, was not the Japan he had left. While the group had been gone, the Tairo, or leading counselor of the bakufu, a man named I e. Nausuke, had been assassinated by anti-Western radicals. That was just the beginning. After E.'s death, the bakufu lacked strong leadership, and radical groups were taking full advantage of the situation to go after anyone seen as too pro-Western. Fukuzawa was basically the poster child for everything they hated, and as a result he was more or less in constant fear for his life. He decided that the only safe thing to do was essentially to lock himself away and continue his studies until things died down, which he did more or less until after the Meiji Restoration. He was aided in this by the fact that the bakufu, now recognizing his value, made him a hatamoto, a direct retainer of the shogun now on their payroll. This was when he began producing the scholarly works for which he is best known, simple introductions to Western geography, history, or philosophy designed for a Japanese audience. He would produce such works for the rest of his life, but we're going to pull the narrative over here to discuss them as a lump. The two best known are Seyo Jijo or Conditions in the West, and Gakumon no Susume, the Encouragement of Learning. Conditions in the West is a multi-volume work describing the other countries of the world, the parts of which came up more or less around the time of the Meiji Restoration. It proved tremendously popular not least of all because it was written with a great deal of reliance on phonetic characters rather than kanji ideographs, making it far easier for people of lower education levels to follow. The Encouragement of Learning was published in the early Meiji years, from 1872 to 1876, and was essentially a repackaging of Western moral philosophy for Meiji Japan. In particular, Fukuzawa Yukichi took a great many of his ideas for The Encouragement of Learning, from a book on moral science, which is to say ethics, by Francis Wayland, a former president of Brown University in Rhode Island in the United States. The most famous lines, however, those in the opening, are craved from somewhere else. Quote, it is said that heaven did not create men above men, nor put men under men. Therefore, heaven's aim is that all men are equal at birth without distinction of high and low, or noble and mean and that they should all work with body and soul in a manner worthy of lords of creation, which they are, in order to use nature for fulfilling their needs of clothing, food, and dwelling, freely but without obstructing others, so that each may live happily through life. Those of you familiar with American history may hear something dimly familiar in those lines, for Fukuzawa Yukichi was essentially attempting to render into classical Japanese concepts utterly unfamiliar to Japanese culture. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the just consent of the governed. That's right, Fukuzawa Yukichi was indirectly quoting the 1776 Declaration of Independence, American principles about individual rights appealed very deeply to him, though he put his own twist on it. The goal was not the protection of individual rights, but the strength of the nation, the most effective way to accomplish that strength being the promotion of individual rights. This is, in other words, the same argument that Yoshida Shigeru and others would make after World War II. America's system was good not because of wishy-washy business about individual rights or natural liberty or whatever but because it worked to make America powerful and could be made to make Japan powerful in the same way. For now, Fukuzawa confined himself to these kind of semi-translations of Western works with his own ideas interspersed in them. As he grew older, he began to make more direct political and philosophical statements rather than couching his ideas in the ideas of others. In addition to all this philosophizing, Fukuzawa also found time to serve on a second foreign mission to Europe visiting France and Germany before arriving in Russia to help negotiate a border treaty. The negotiations themselves ultimately failed, but much of the material for the aforementioned conditions in the West came from this trip. Personally, Fukuzawa was very pro-Bakufu. Up until 1868, he defended them as the only legitimate government of Japan, primarily because he believed the imperial camp of Satsuma and Choshu was made up mostly of former Sonojoy advocates which was correct, and that they still wanted to expel barbarian influence at gunpoint, which was not. In his autobiography, though, he says he didn't pick sides, but that's not true. He was just trying to whitewash his own past, since fighting in the defense of samurai government looked pretty bad for the great defender of westernization, and since he turned out to have been pretty wrong about the Meiji government himself. Still, while he was very pro-Bakfu, he did not go and fight himself. Instead, he devoted his time to his work and to the school he'd been given control of, which he renamed the Keo Gijuku in 1868. Keo was the current Nengo, or era name, and Gijuku was an attempt to render public school into Japanese. Not public in the sense that we understand it, though, Fukuzawa's school was very much run by him and not the government. As far as I can tell, by public school, Fukuzawa meant school for the public good. He ended up moving Keo's campus in 1871 from its original location in the dockyard neighborhood of Tsukiji to Tokyo's Minato Ward. The land for the campus was purchased cheap at 500 yen, and years later Fukuzawa would recount with glee his cleverness at snapping up such prime real estate for so little money. Keo became a western-style incorporated university in 1890. Before that, it had been a school, it just didn't have the department structure of a university. It's still around today and is the most visible legacy of Fukuzawa Yukichi. It's also one of the most prestigious schools in Japan and arguably the most prestigious private one, though any of my listeners with ties to the equally famous Wasida University would probably dispute that point. Once the Meiji government made it clear that far from closing the country off, it was going to actively modernize it and dismantle feudalism, Fukuzawa's most hated foe, Fukuzawa came out of his seclusion and began writing policy advice. In a sense, he became a sort of pundit of westernization. He even started his own newspaper, with the prompting of several other Meiji leaders, called Jiji Shinpo, which translates roughly as current events. The values he espoused were purely western ones, individuality, science, and positivist rationalism, that is to say the values of the Enlightenment in western culture. The flip side of this was that Fukuzawa was very disparaging of Japanese culture and history. He described his views as such, quote, If we compare the knowledge of Japanese and Westerners in letters, in techniques, in commerce, or in industry, from the largest to the smallest matter, there is not one thing in which we excel. Outside of the most stupid person in the world, no one could say that our learning or business is on par with those of the Western countries. Who could compare our carts with their locomotives, or our swords with their pistols? We speak of yin and yang and the five elements. They have discovered sixty elements. In the present condition there is nothing in which we may feel pride vis-a-vis the West. All that Japan has to be proud of is its scenery. Indeed, Fukuzawa became an outspoken proponent of things even other Meiji leaders thought ridiculous, such as education and social rights for women because that's how it was done in the West, and anything done in the West was, by its very nature, superior to what was done in Japan. He also encouraged the total abandonment of Japanese-style clothing in favor of Western outfits, and while he was reportedly a swordsman of some accomplishment in his youth, he gave it up in the 1860s and pawned his swords. Ironically, Fukuzawa himself did not educate his daughters and kept them isolated from others in the traditional Japanese style, and even in his later years, he often wore Japanese clothes. When asked about these contradictions, he would simply say that it was hard for an old man to change his ways. Specifically, his response was, quote, "A wine merchant is not always a drinker. a cake dealer does not always go in search of sweets. You should not make hasty judgments of the dealer's taste by what he sells in his shop. So yeah, a bit of a hypocrite." Incidentally, this time period is also where he gets the nickname the Sage of Mita. Mita was the name of the district in Tokyo where he lived. Now, no discussion of Fukuzawa would be complete without talking about a particularly controversial piece he wrote in 1880 called the datsu a or An Argument on Escaping from Asia, which was published in his newspaper. Fukuzawa was prompted to write by developments in Korea. Attempts by the Korean court to implement their own reform efforts on Western lines had stalled in the face of conservative pushback. Fukuzawa was furious with the Koreans and the Chinese for failing to modernize. In a world where transportation and traffic had become so convenient, they, the Chinese and Koreans, have no excuses to be blinded from the recognition of civilization. However, even when they can see it, that is, the signs of progress in civilization, or hear it, they lack the will to act. Their stubborn love affairs with ancient mentalities and outdated customs have never changed in hundreds and thousands of years. In terms of education in schools, they can refer only to benevolence, integrity, decorum, and wisdom, that is, the traditional Confucian virtues. In truth, they neglect righteous principles. Thus, he continued later in the piece, Quote, it is in our best interest to leave the ranks of Asian nations and cast our lot in with the civilized nations of the West. As for our approach to the treating of China and Korea, there shall be no special treatment just because they are neighboring countries. Those who cherish bad friends cannot escape the fate of being branded bad persons. This argument certainly fitted in with Fukuzawa's thinking, but many later historians have essentially described it as justifying the brutalities of the Japanese Empire. For a long time it was debated just how genuine Fukuzawa's support for the empire was, but a few years back, the following anecdote, from 1882, came to light. Fukuzawa confided his feelings about a recent trip abroad, Quote, Recently I took a voyage across the Indian Ocean. During that trip, I saw the English officers land on many places in China and elsewhere that they controlled. They were extremely arrogant, and their attitude toward the natives so brazen that it was not possible to believe the English were dealing with the same human beings. In seeing all of this, my reaction was a mixture of pity for the natives and of envy for the English. Even now I cannot forget the promise I made secretly in my heart. We are Japanese, and we shall someday raise the national power of Japan, so that not only shall we control the natives of China and India as the English do today, but we shall possess the power to rebuke the English and rule Asia ourselves. End quote. Here indeed was the germ of the Japanese Empire. It's certainly not entirely fair to hold Fukuzawa responsible for actions that took place 40 years after his death, but while he may have objected to the actual actions of Japanese troops on the ground, it's unlikely he would have objected to overall policy as it stood in the 1940s. Fukuzawa was an imperialist at heart, and he celebrated one of the moments that marked the birth of Japan's overseas empire, the victory over China in the 1894-95 Sino-Japanese War. For Fukuzawa, it was a vindication of the superiority of the Western model of civilization over the Chinese model which had dominated East Asia for 2,000 years. Fukuzawa died very early in the 20th century, on February 3rd, 1901. His legacy for Japan has been a very tremendous one. As one of the leading figures in determining exactly what a new Japan would even look like, he deserves a lot of credit for helping to shape the Meiji state. In fact, his legacy is such that his face actually adorns Japan's 10,000 yen note. And yet, his legacy is not an entirely comfortable one. Fukuzawa's embrace of the West as it existed in the 1800s meant embracing some pretty awful things. Let us not forget, after all, this was the West during the peak of colonialism and imperialism. Japan, an able student in everything else it learned from the West, proved adept at these things as well, and the results for Asia were horrifying. Fukuzawa was, of course, dead before the real heyday of the Japanese Empire, but in some ways, as the criticism of his stance in The Escape from Asia suggests, Japan's adventures abroad are partially his brainchild. Fukuzawa's intellectual legacy is less than entirely comfortable as well. In his haste to reject everything Japanese, he left little in Japanese culture for native Japanese to be proud of. In a certain sense, the conservative pushback and the ultranationalism of the 1890s and the 20th century was a counter-reaction to Fukuzawa's disparaging Of everything that Japan had been. To put it another way, Fukuzawa provided a very good reason for why Japan could no longer be what it was, but never really provided a good answer for what it should be instead. When he failed to do so, others stepped in, and the roadmap they provided was the roadmap of ultranationalism. Like any historical figure, then, his legacy is a complicated one. His belief in meritocracy, education, and at least some form of gender equity is laudable, but his actual treatment of the women in his life, and the disparaging stance he took towards the unenlightened on the Asian mainland, was not. His legacy, like that of modern Japan itself, and indeed like pretty much any country you can think of, involves a lot to be proud of, as well as a lot to be ashamed of. That's all for this week. Special thanks this week to Melvin Okamura for donating to support the show. And to Camden Allen Bassett for giving me some excellent advice on how to clean up the audio and remove some background noise that's been bothering a few of you guys. Hopefully it's working better now. For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we tackle one of Japan's great modern political leaders, Ito Hirabumi, the Bismarck of the East.